military has been systematically torturing detainees in the wake of pro-democracy protests in the country. March 2021. People in Yangon still had faith, faith. Those hopes were crushed as the junta moved in and swept up hundreds of fleeing protesters. During the current crisis unfolding in Myanmar, events are happening so fast that it can feel challenging to keep up with them. Although we're working to increase our podcast production far beyond what we've ever done before to meet the needs of this ever-changing crisis, we feel that the podcasts alone still do not address the full range of everything going on. So we encourage you to also check out the blogs on our website, insightmyanmar.org. Also feel free to check out our other social media sites. Just look for Insight Myanmar or Burma Dama on your preferred platform. And to engage in this topic more deeply and discuss with other practitioners, head over to the Facebook group, Meditation in Burma slash Myanmar. With that, let's head to our show. comes from a small village in Rakhine State. She is actively involved with a number of Arakan civil society organizations and youth groups. She was interviewed on May 2nd. What I feel sad about though is that most young people in Myanmar do not have the opportunity to study at all at the moment, whether online or offline, which means they're basically losing their future. I was in Yangon when the coup happened. I had a lot of missed calls from my friends and activists I work with that night. And when I finally answered one at around 4.30 a.m., I found out there had been a military coup. Actually, I wasn't that shocked. I had suspected the coup would happen. My first thought was that, based on our experience in Rakhine State, people needed to prepare for an internet shutdown and for not being able to communicate with their loved ones. So I began to calmly spread this message with my network. In contrast to many of my friends, I never really thought of going out into the streets to protest against the coup. You know, while people in Yango and NLD supporters, mostly from the Bama majority, were experiencing the so-called democratic transition in recent years, we in Rakhine State continued to live and suffer under a military dictatorship. After the coup, these very same groups began calling for unity of all of Myanmar. But where were they when our ethnic people were dying in communal and armed conflicts? It is unfair and very painful. Actually, many people in Rakhine State feel as much distrust and even hatred towards the Bama majority as they do towards the military. Because of this, I felt a little out of place in Yangon after the coup, so I decided to go back to my home state. When I arrived, I met with some youth who were thinking of organizing a protest. 
We discussed it for a while, especially the high risk of getting arrested or even killed since the military presence in Rakhine State is much bigger than in Yangon. We ask ourselves, who is it exactly we would be protesting for? And do we deserve to get jailed or killed for that? In the end, we decided against it. That is why Rakhine State is silent now. We don't talk about the military, and there is no CDM here. What affected my life post-coup the most have been the progressive internet shutdowns. I had to cancel many of my plans, like an online civic education course for university students that I had been preparing together with some of my seniors. I was also unable to move abroad for my master's studies as I had originally planned since my flight got cancelled in part due to the coup here and in part due to a COVID-19 outbreak over there. Luckily, I can study online, but I've had to move a couple of times in order to secure a stable internet connection. What I feel sad about though is that most young people in Myanmar do not have opportunity to study at all at the moment, whether online or offline, which means they're basically losing their future. Of course, the coup has also affected me and everyone around me psychologically. The constant stream of bad news is heartbreaking. When I get too stressed, I spend time alone, go for walks on the beach, listen to music or exercise. Sometimes I write down my thoughts and feelings about what's going on in the country. In my family, there are different opinions on the current events, so it has become a very sensitive topic for us. For the first few weeks after the coup, we couldn't even discuss it. I experienced something similar with my personal network as well. First, I was sharing my opinions about the political situation very openly, both online and offline. But then this led to fights with friends and other activists and people began accusing me of being selfish. So in the end, I decided to stay silent. I feel like everyone wants to get media attention nowadays, but I would say that the world needs to listen to the unheard voices in Myanmar before it overgeneralizes the situation in the country. I'm personally worried about my state, because in contrast to the past, when there was a lot of discussion, Rakhine State is now silent. It feels scary and I worry there will be more fighting in the future. Uh, 
at the very first day of February, I didn't know uh, how much that the coup can affect it on the civilians because I, I had no experience. Um, but um, on February 7, uh, my friends uh, started protesting. Actually, they were protesting before that, but I, I didn't get any content before it. Uh, then I also wanted to try with them. Um, at first, it's just for fun and just to get that new experience because uh, I don't um, I don't like, I'm not a fan of uh, energy nor the military, uh, but I do love the freedom and democracy that um, the past government gave us. Uh, so I I start protesting on February seven, and other of my neighbors also joined uh, the near strikes, like uh, war strikes, or uh, they they gather around uh, in the quarter and they shout the chant. And one of my neighbor also included, but he's not the one who protests. He just make the free right, free right for the protester, and cause he had he had he had a car, and he want, wanted to use it uh, usefully. Uh, he's he was a good guy, cause when uh, when we heard that some gangs wanted to uh, wanted to burn down the houses in the quarter. I didn't know why they wanted to do it, but they, uh, the youth in the quarter start um, making making a group uh, to uh, to wait uh, to wait for the gangs and not to ban uh, not to ban the houses or not to hurt anyone. He he was also a member. And he was an addict guy, but on February twenty eighth, um, he uh, he drove uh, he drove for the uh, protester like uh, he used to do. But on that day, he tried to grab someone um, who was shot by the military. At the time, he came out from his car and he was also shot to the neck. And his friends and neighbors uh, was very shocked, and they grabbed him to the home first. Then they took him to the hospital and take an operation that was uh, successful, and he was almost alive. But um, the military inquired uh, the one, the ones who they they shoot, and if. Uh, if there is anyone uh, died because of them, they uh, they grab the dead bodies and they do something. They did did something. I don't know what did they do, and they sent back to the family later after weeks, a weeks or two weeks. I'm not sure. Sometimes the the family don't even get the dead bodies. They just get the ash, the ash of the uh, they are they are family member, and my neighbor also. Uh, my neighbor's family also uh, worry about 
they are sent uh they are sent desperately to grab find the military that's why they moved to the another hospital uh he was almost um conscious again but uh, he died on the way to the hospital i uh i couldn't say how much he was painful and we uh we went we went to his uh funeral ceremony and there are just very few people and everyone is crying and couldn't believe what what happened because he was almost alive that died um that in that way he shouldn't be I see. So thank you for telling me the story. I'm sure this was very difficult to go back to those experiences that were so painful and that happened at the start. And you're describing your neighbor who was, uh, like many people in those early days of the protest, was providing, uh, his using his car and his driving skills to be able to bring protesters from one place to another. And as he was providing this free service, he was shot in the neck. Or is there any idea who shot him or where it came from or why he was shot? Oh, no. Actually, I didn't know. I, I just know he was shot in uh, in Flaren. Uh, it's somewhere in Django. Uh, there were a lot of people. I, I don't know exactly. Mm -hmm. And then he went and had an operation, and the operation was successful. And at that point, after a successful operation, what should have been the protocol? Was he healthy enough to go home and be discharged, or was he being watched over at the hospital? But what what should have happened after that successful operation, and what happened instead? I I didn't go to the hospital, but uh, our some of our neighbors also wanted. Uh, so they told me that uh, he, his fingers are moving after the operation, after couples of hours after the operations, and so he uh, maybe he can he could almost go home, but uh, the nurse, the nurses, and the doctor didn't. Uh, they not uh, let him uh, go off from the hospital uh, for a moment because they, they are afraid of the military. So they, uh, they let him move to another hospital. But that hospital is also under the control of the military. So if he even got there, he won't survive. He, he wouldn't survive. And do they, does anyone know how he ended up passing away, what he died of? Uh, someone said he, he was dead because lack of oxygen uh, on the way. So I'm not sure how, because mm -hmm. of the uh, nurse mistake or just because of the oxygen failure. I'm not sure. Right. Yes. Understood. And even something worse if it was something deliberate on the part of the military. But it sounds like he uh, was doing a good thing. And uh, in terms of the volunteering work that he was doing for the protesters of driving them around, and then he was shot, presumably by the military. And basically, he was then in trouble for getting shot. 
yeah, yeah. I've also another example how to wear the military is. Um, there's uh, there's a guy. Uh, he is um, the boyfriend of my cousin's sister. Uh, he knew someone who who was a volunteer. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, he uh, he knew someone uh, who was a volunteer in the strike. Uh, they uh, they drove the ambulance car, and when the military caught them, they was uh, hit by the can, uh, hit by the can, uh, till uh, their helmet took off. Mm. They they uh, they couldn't do anything back to them. They just sitting in front of them and being being hidden by them. Mm. Someone was there. That yeah, uh, yeah there were about three three people. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to understand the cruelty and the inhumanity faced with this military. And with what happened to your neighbor, that's obviously a very traumatic event and sounds like he was a very good person. And and the shock of a good person being treated that way uh, and, the, and the pain he must have gone through and then the pain that his family is dealing with, it's, it's really unimaginable. And in speaking to you before the interview, you were mentioning this. Ex so this example with your neighbor was not just a really terrible, bad, traumatic thing that happened, but it also had a very profound effect on you personally because as you explained it to me, before we're speaking now, uh, and as you, you mentioned at the beginning of this interview, you were not necessarily pro or anti-military or pro or anti-NLD, and it, you might have been a bit indifferent when the protest, when the, the coup first happened and you went with your friends to protest, but you weren't really personally invested and weren't really sure about all that was going on. But you said when this happened to your neighbor, this suddenly, some, something changed inside you because of this. So can you elaborate on that a little? Yeah, because um, I, I said I'm not a fan of energy or in military because I, in uh, 2020, at the first of 2020, maybe March, uh, the COVID uh, infected to Myanmar. At the time, uh, both, not both, all of the parties are uh, um, seduced the people uh even even though there are a lot of COVID cases are increasing, uh, they don't care. They did uh, sorry, the government didn't care about it, and they just uh, making uh, let me say they just uh, trying to catch the attention of the people uh, to get more votes. So I hate that because uh, there were a lot of people infected uh, by that. Uh, by that ceremonies, so I'm not a fan of none of them. But later, um, I I know uh, how the military is cruel that way. So I just uh, I just want to keep them down. Yeah, and this might also relate to your background because, as you also shared with me, you, uh, your grandfather and your father were both soldiers. You had a very close relationship 
with your grandfather and you lived among the military until you were eight years old. So can you describe a bit about your childhood with the Tamada and what it was like having a father and grandfather who came from that organization, how, how that influenced you and what, how it conditioned you and what your experiences were with them? Yeah. Uh, my grandfather, he passed away uh, 37 years ago and he was very kind to me. And he was a patient guys on on me and also on uh, his own daughters. Uh, he, uh, as he was a soldier, he fought a lot of enemies and he killed. He might kill a lot of people. I'm not sure about that. But I, I didn't know his dark side. How will his dark side be? So I just know his lifestyle and he was a good person. My father, oh, I, I don't, uh, I can't even mention with words how much he's a good person. Uh, because uh, he even didn't yell at me since the whole life. Now I'm 26 and he still didn't yell at me and no beating and nothing. He just uh, very so patient. Even under the condition, I made some mistakes while I was a teenager. My my mother, even my mother, is not that patient. <laughs> uh, so I thought uh, the soldiers are very good, and they're just good guys like the other person, and nothing different. Uh, when I was a kid, um, some soldiers also took care of me. Why my my mother is busy and my father was in his office. Uh, the other soldiers also played with me and they were such a good guys. But um, why uh, the group started, they, they just uh, they just obey. Uh, they have uh, the, the, order, the, the order by the military and they don't care. They didn't care anyone's life. But uh, mostly are like that. But some are still, uh, some still want to try the CDM movement because um, I know someone who uh, who change uh, to to sorry who change uh, the size. Uh, they against the military and they tried with the civilians. So. There are also some good guys in the soldiers. Mm, right. So how do you make sense of that today? The fact that you have these really warm and beautiful memories of your father and your grandfather, how they took care of their family and not just financially, but how they just seem like very warm and compassionate and nice human beings. And they were in this organization, the Tamada, which you're seen as uh, you're now seen for what it is, uh, and the dark and the cruel side of it. Do do you see uh, as you look back and reflect it now, and you're going through this transition? Do you do you feel that your father and grandfather were fundamentally good people that were trapped in a bad organization, or do you feel that you only had access to some part of their personality, and there was? another part of what they were doing and who they were that you never really knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe my, my grandfather might do some bad things. I, I didn't know and I can't ask him 
but I, I knew that he fought a lot of battles, but not like my father. He, though he was a soldier, he was, uh, he, he didn't need to go to the front line, front line of the battle. He just, uh, stay in the back line and make some, uh, paperwork. So he doesn't know about the gangs or fighting people. Maybe because of that, he is a good guy. Hmm. I, I can imagine that must be hard to reconcile and, and contemplate, uh, you know, as you're learning more information and, and trying to reflect on your family and history. I imagine that must be quite hard. So given that family background that you had with growing up among soldiers and having your father and grandfather uh, as part of the military as well, I imagine you had a complicated relationship and also you're going through your own learning process now. When the coup actually hit on February 1st, given your background, how did you feel about it? You weren't a fan of the NLD. Were, did you think that the coup was a good thing initially and maybe the military had run the country better or what were your feelings? Oh, uh, I I just didn't think that the coup is that that much bad because um, as I told you, I have no experience that because uh, in in the books and I knew uh, I knew about the dictators. Uh, they were no, they all were very bad, um, like the ver- like the worst person in the world, like the general Nguyen and other people. Uh, they did a lot, a lot of killing to the civilians, and I I read some books about them and the cruelty. I can't imagine, but. I didn't read the books, that kind of books, before the coup. So I have, I had no idea. But later, I knew more about them, and they are just like psychopaths with hands. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, when the coup initially broke, what were your feelings at that time? Immediate feeling, I, I can't. Um, I can guess a little because before the coup um, on January, uh, someone from the military side made a, a conference meeting. Uh, at that meeting, he said they are gonna uh, they are gonna make a coup. Uh, someone, sorry, a reporter asked him that uh, can we uh, can we be assured that you don't make any coup? He said no, so I thought they might do something big uh, before soon. And as far as we guessed, they did it. And most of the people around me also don't think, sorry, didn't, didn't think that who is that much bad on February 1 because we, we're just so excited and oh, our our leaders are now detained by the military. What will happen next? But we are sure that they won't kill any of the leaders because um, someone is very famous and someone they can choose. Anyway, so we didn't worry about them, but we worry about our financial problem or other educations or something like that. These are not important 
uh, in this situation. Mm, right. You know, it's interesting when you're talking about your family who was involved in the military and then you learning that the military is this fascist mafia organization and having to reconcile that. I realized one of the things that brings to my mind is I had a very strange experience a few years ago when I was in Thailand. And actually, of all things, I was at a, an oolong tea tasting uh, kind of ceremony with a bunch of different people around the table. And I was sitting next to a an older German woman for about three hours. And at the very end of the conversation, I don't remember how it happened or how I came to learn, but this woman was the daughter of Hermann Goring, who was one of the top Nazis who developed the, uh, who was instrumental in the Holocaust of killing all the Jews in the concentration camps. And it was pretty astounding to think that I was seated next to the daughter of one of the greatest war criminals of the 20th century. And uh, of course, being very curious about who this person was, then did some research and looked, and she's written a book, and there's been a documentary about her. She's very much denounced her father and and has you know shame growing up of who she, who she is and how she, how just even her bloodline. But and that's a whole other story that is quite interesting in itself. But where it reminds me is she just describes a very happy and warm and friendly uh, family life of her father bringing gifts home and having nice holidays and how he was loving. And I think for some of us, it's, it's quite confusing and shocking to think about examples where someone can be involved in a murderous uh, uh, fascist organization, whether it's the Nazi party or the Tatmada, and committing all these atrocities and crimes against humanity and yet they're not these total monsters. They, uh, there can be people involved in these organizations that do try to be ethical and moral, and there could be others like Herman Goring that are absolute monsters, and they are really the worst of the worst, and yet at the same time, they, they do have these shreds of humanity in them. They, they, there are things they love. There are things they care about. They do have ethical or selfless or loving actions towards others. And so it can be kind of confounding, I think, for those of us not associated or connected to this to think just about the complexity of human nature and of human motivations and such. Yeah. Yeah. That's what uh, we are doing right away. Uh, uh, last, uh, last two months ago, uh, someone, uh, connected me with a group that is, um, uh, making, um, making contents and some side works for, for the military side. Uh, it's, uh, it's more like we are reminding them that there are still things they care about. There are still people they care about. They have to care about. And if, what if that, Persons or things were destroyed cruelly by someone to to didn't do so you didn't do anything. What will happen? So we question about their empathy. So that's what we're doing right away. Right. Yeah. So, and getting back to your story where we left off in February, March. So, you know, your neighbor being shot in the neck had this profound influence on changing and redirecting how you felt and what you want to do about the coup. And then the young woman being shot in Mandalay was uh, was also very traumatic for you. And then the military came out and they denied that they had shot her. 
and did not admit to the details around her death. And that was another moment in on your road to activism and uh, joining the resistance. Why was that so impactful for you? Yeah, because um, as I mentioned, you he was a very good guy. Even though we 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 weren't a, uh, we weren't friends, he uh, he even joined the member uh, to protect uh, to protect the uh, the quarter. Actually, he was a guest. Um, it means he just stay in uh, in his friend's home in. Uh, where where we live near where we live so he was not from the town he was not from our town but he cared about so much though he is a guest he cared about us so much so why can't we do it why can't we protest our neighbors and why can't we protest our country from that dictators so that's very clear <laughs> uh, I decided I will do anything and I won't stop uh, with no reason till the dictator fall off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you had referenced a couple other incidences that also had a profound impact on your decision to be a revolutionary. One of those was the shooting of Matwe Thwe Kine in Mandalay, and they denied that they killed her. And then another incident you were involved, it was when you uh, you attended a protest uh, that resulted in 30 people that were killed. Um, you were present there, and so you witnessed some of the things unfolding, and then the military denied what happened and made up phony stories about the protesters. So can you tell a little bit about your reaction to both those incidences and why they were so meaningful to you in terms of the future action that it resulted in you following? Yeah. Um, on that um, March 27, that was uh, Demaro Day for them. So uh, our civilians thought uh, they won't kill that much people because uh, the international uh, uh, international council is watching over us. We, we thought we thought that, but um, the other country don't care that much. Uh, and we thought so, and we we have no idea what are waiting for. So I just put some stuff uh, in my backpack, like the water bottle and extra clothing and some snacks. So I just um, I just uh, went to the strikes uh, as ever. But um, my friends calling me. Uh, they keep calling me uh, why I'm on strike. Actually, I don't answer the phone on uh, why I'm on strike because that was so noisy and I can't hear very well. But I just pick up because they call me so many times and they shout at me, you have to grant because there are a lot of uh, forces are coming to you where, uh, where you are and they're going to kill a lot of people, uh, they guess. So I I check uh, to uh, to the sport uh, it was right or not, and there are also some people uh, two bus stops away. Um, that uh, actually the killing was um, maybe uh, four four bus stops away from me, so I couldn't see clearly. But I had a lot of 
can shootings and a lot of uh, people shouting and running running away. Uh, my brother, my little brother was uh, here there and he was shot by some smoke crow. And my friends, one of my friends also were also there. So they were also shot by the smoke bones and they ran uh, between the alleys. So they escaped. But uh, two of my, uh, my friends, sisters were arrested, uh, just arrested, they, they weren't hurt any. Uh, so I, I, I got back home uh, at the time and while I was home, my, my brother was just on the spot. So we have to save him and we, uh, we picked up him. Actually, my father did, so he also escaped. We didn't have much, but there were about 30 people died. I know, uh, I knew it because, uh, the township I went on strike was a township I used to go for many years, uh, for my, uh, for my job. So I knew where they, they didn't lie to me. And someone, uh, after, after, some weeks, maybe two or three weeks, I'm not sure, maybe I can see the dates. Uh, someone was also hit uh, in the in the ribs, ribs because he went uh, to the spot where the military banning, uh, banning something. They, sorry, he went there to, uh, uh, to throw water at the fire, but he was also shot and died on the spot. He was my junior friend. Mm, I'm sorry to hear that's all quite traumatic to take in and to have to experience. And all of these episodes contributed to your decision to want to be a revolutionary and resist this military in every way that you could. Uh, and that's coming from a place where, as we've mentioned, when the coup hit, you didn't, uh, unlike many protesters now, you didn't necessarily have this immediate reaction to it, but this grew. So would you say that the decision to be a revolutionary and to play some of the roles you're playing now, which we'll get into in a moment, do you feel that this was a gradual path over the course of February and March that you kind of landed on, this is what you would do? Or was there like a moment, like an off on where suddenly light bulb just hit you and you knew this is what you were going to do? Was it more of a gradual or immediate decision? Yeah, not an immediate decision. Uh, actually, uh, the moments uh, uh, why my neighbors and my junior friends was killed uh, make me more make my decision more stronger. Sorry, stronger. Not uh, not just uh, immediate decision. I just um, I just wanted to uh, beat them down since they start killing the people without uh, without any reason. Like uh, like they killed uh, a girl in Nebido and someone in Mandalay and a lot of people in Django and also in Baku. They did a lot of killing, but uh, you see no um, no regret about them, uh, about that. But 
met uh, someone who joins CDM and his wife told me that uh, she was also very shocked why the soldiers make a lot of killing that much because she uh, she uh, she was proud of uh, her, her husband why uh, he he got the promotion and as a I don't know how to say that position in English. So he he went he got the promotion and he was she was proud for her husband. But later, why uh, the soldiers are killing this, a lot of civilians, uh, like uh, teenagers and even the kids and the and the ten. So she was also pregnant at the time. So she worried about uh, her future uh, future kid. So. She decided to join CDM with her husband, and she urged her husband day and night. At first, uh, her husband didn't agree with with her, but later, he also realized that how um, how those are cruel, and uh, he also worried about his future kids. So they joined CDM and they went to our site. Mm -hmm. And what I found that's interesting in what you just said is you referenced how when some of the cruelty and the acts of violence took place, <clears throat> for example, your neighbor and um, the some of the people you knew in the township, that this made you angry, this made you dedicated, this hardened your resolve. And what I find interesting about that is in previous revolutions in Myanmar, this often had the opposite effect. This violence scared people, it quieted people, it made them be suppressed and repressed and stay inside their homes. And that allowed the military to win because those who were courageous, who were the minority, would come out and they could easily take care of them while everyone else stayed inside in fear. And, uh, you know, there's been this expression among Generation Z that started out in February of you messed with the wrong generation. And I think when this saying came out, it was uh, it was quite, you know, there was some bravado and it was quite, um, uh, quite, a, quite a kind of um, exciting, proud thing to say. But to be honest, it was it was before the, the difficulty really happened. And so it was hard to know how much this statement really meant. But as we've seen this protest movement progress, I keep coming back to the statement of you messed with the, the wrong generation. And it really does seem like something about this generation has decided to act differently than generations before it when the Tatmadaw is doing its tricks. of, uh, and, and one of those we see is that when it kills people, when it commits cruelty, when it lies, instead of being scared and silent and staying at home and hoping one wouldn't be, be uh, targeted, which is the normal human response, people like you have actually gotten angry and more motivated, more active and wanting to join the resistance. So uh, I wonder if you've noticed that and with looking at your generation and your parents or grandparents' generation, if you've seen that difference and why you think that difference is there. Yeah. Uh, at first, my parents also uh, want me uh, not to do that much. That much me. Uh, they they are also scared of uh, that I might kill by military or I might be uh, be attacked by them. So they they wanted to stop me, but I I think that uh, I really know that. What if I don't do? Uh, uh, what if I don't 
do this kind of revolutionary things, someone uh, someone will make instead of me. But uh, the uh, the friends from our side will be weaker. So I don't want it. And we need more more strengths, and uh, we want to end it very uh, very fast. Uh, we are losing our rights, like human rights, women rights, men rights, whatever, time rights, uh, everything. We're losing it. And actually, uh, they have no rights to order us just because they have the pants. Because um, this is not the way to rule the people. This is just the way to rule the animals or something else. We're not animals. We're just humans and we we know what to do and what is right and what is wrong. They can't they can't teach us by the wrong way. So actually I, I don't even know why I'm not scared of why even uh, the people near me are killing and adapting. I don't know but I just know I had to do it. I forgot to mention you that someone uh, also detained by the military because uh, he was a leader of a strike. That was our childhood friend, my, my little brother's childhood friend. Uh, he was a very smart and good guy. Uh, he led he led a strike uh, near our quarter. But he was detained since since March till till now. Though uh, though the gen, uh, though may I release some uh, some detainer uh, less uh, less three days ago, but he wasn't involved, and a lot of people were also arrested after released. That's that's also a cruel thing, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. That's one of many, many cruel things that's going on. And you had mentioned when you became more resolved to be a revolutionary, your mother was very scared for you, as any mother would be. However, I'm also curious about your father. Your father was a soldier in the Tamada, and as far as you're comfortable sharing, what has been uh, his feelings towards the coup? Yeah, uh, I'm... Uh, I was also wondering, well, will he stop me? Actually, no. He, but he just encouraged me and uh, warned me what to do in the uh, if if someone should uh, to to lay on the ground or to find uh, somewhere to hide or to cover or uh, if uh, if you hear that kind of sound, that's a sound bomb, or if you hear that kind of sound, that's a smoke bomb, and that's rear can or that's rubber bullets. So he uh, he teach he taught me some important things. That's incredible. So your father actually prepared you for the combat that you were going to find yourself in, and. Uh, to rather than preventing you uh, from leaving the house or from being involved, he actually provided you war tips of how to stay safe. Yeah, they know they couldn't. Mm. <laughs> I'm that kind of people. Uh, I'm that kind of person. I can't be stoppable. What if I, I want to do something so bad? So they knew it.
Uh-huh. And your father being a retired soldier, what has been his view of the coup? Is he Does he feel any kind of loyalty still towards the Tamada from his time there? Oh, actually, he was a retired one since uh, he was 27. It's not normal, right? Because uh, the retired person has to work until they are 60. But he, he got... Uh, retire uh, since he was uh, 37. But because of some measures, uh, the upper dog state uh, training infantry and the other the other general, they got some mess. And my my dad uh, my dad's army was from the other side. Uh, so the infantry uh, did um and they removed all of his people and he let he let them in the jail them and he uh, he sent to the uh, countryside to some soldiers and but like uh, like the soldier like my fathers uh, they didn't do any um, let's say any crime and also they didn't take any uh, illegal money that's why they couldn't find any uh, punishment for him, so they get they just gave him the retire retirement. Mm, right, and so what have been his feelings since the coup broke? Yeah, uh, he was also a protester in '88. Mm. Uh, yeah, 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 uh, but not very intense. Just uh, just protesting like our first man uh, with with his friends so he didn't know exactly what is right and but later he joined the army because at the time the military was very strong that no one can beat him down beat, beat it down so uh, his parents might thought the military is strong so if he joined the military he will also be um, he will also be uh, uh, strong one and maybe good paying one, but uh, there are things around in the military. He, uh, though, uh, he is uh, he's just uh, they are they are office staff, but my my mother has to do some staff, though uh, she she didn't want or not, whatever. Mm. So we didn't like the military, and we were happy when. Yeah, when we have to get out, uh, get out of it, and we are still very happy while we are outside at this time. I see. That's that's interesting. And so all of these events transpired to be able to encourage you to be a revolutionary and help the cause in any way you can. What have you been doing these past number of months? to find your place of what you can do to support the resistance? Oh, yes. Um, uh, at first, uh, at the very first, like February and March, I was a, a ground protester. But um, to know the protesters don't have any weapons and why the military started fighting us, we, we don't know how to defend them. So we just stay home in uh, start from... Uh, start from April, and later I I wanted to join the strikes again after the holiday of April. You know, there there's a festival in April in Myanmar, 
That's why we don't go out at this time. But later, I wanted to try this right again. But a friend who joined the people army, uh, the people army is uh, the PDF, you know, the people army. So he called me and he was in the, uh, he was in somewhere and the, and the kitchen, kitchen military. And so he wanted to come back to Yango and he, he said, can you support him? So I say yes, because I was so glad that he called me because I wanted also to join the the other army to to fight them back. But he said that's very tired and um, I I can't be able to hold it. So just support him with many and other stuff like um, like uh, hiding hiding him. Uh, in a safe house and hiding his some stuffs in the house without knowing anyone. Uh huh. So that was one of the first activities that you did that was really starting to actually support the resistance. And what roles have you taken on since then? What are the main things you do that fill your days in terms of how you're supporting the people? Uh, mostly, uh, many by. Uh, I'm my foreigner friends. They also helped me a lot. And later, I joined a group that uh, that's spreading side wars and some contacts to seduce the soldiers to, to join CDM. So I was a content warrior. Mm-hmm. And how do you, so let's take the first thing you said, which was fundraising. Uh, how do you go about getting funds? How hard is it to get funds? Uh, how are you able to uh, bring about funds and then what do you do with them? Yeah, that's, of course, it's difficult uh, under this situation. Uh, there's uh, two two friends who support me from foreign country. Uh, so I got some fan from them and I give, I give the people who meet uh, in the country. And also uh, my friends... Uh, Tim and Brianna, they also find a lot of fun writing proposals and making some uh, projects. We we earn from it, uh, just like uh, teaching medium soldiers make me uh, make me pay so I can I can share from that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Let's look at that activity a little more. So you are engaging with the soldiers who have chosen to defect from the Tatmadaw and you're teaching them English, which is actually your profession, uh, your, your career before the coup happened was you were an English teacher. So this is something that you're skilled to do. Can you share a bit about what it's like engaging with these defected soldiers, what you've learned about their, uh, I know you're just teaching them English, but even through that interaction, I'm sure you get to see something of their personality and, and how uh, the relationship goes and um, something about their, their background or their character just comes out naturally as you're having conversations. What have you learned about these soldiers who have defected through teaching them English? Yeah, uh, they are very obedient, maybe like natural, and they, uh, they respect me, though some are older than me. They respect a lot, and they are so happy uh, why I'm teaching, and 
the the in charge in charge of the feathers set um they are glad they could they could make it and they uh they appreciate that we care about them because uh, they might also call that um people are hating soldiers actually no we hate just dictatorship and we just hate the one who obey uh to kill the civilians without any reason so i think we understand each other mm-hmm. how many soldiers are you teaching uh it's just around uh 14. Hmm. Hmm, that's interesting. Do you ever have conversations with them, like outside of English? Like, do they ever ask you questions about, uh, because they've been in the military, which is a very insular culture. So do they ever ask you questions about life outside? Or do you ever talk to them about their their time in the military or why you chose to defect or any conversations that happen outside of English instruction? Uh, not now yet, but I have a plan to uh, to ask them like this because I want to know more about them. Why did they join CDM and how much difficult it is? But someone, uh, uh, the in charge, the in one is a wife of a, a wife of a soldier, and she she texts me. Uh, actually, not just to me. We have a group uh, to have uh, CDM soldiers, wives, and children. So in that group, they they text about uh, how much difficulty they, uh, they faced while joining CDM. They are they are all uh, sick of killing people, and they don't want their husband to be a killer. Um, so they decided to join. Though uh, it's very difficult, and uh, they. They have no regret of joining CDM because we care about them so much. And there are also some some more groups that support uh, uh, phone phone bills or uh, like uh, food for them and the children. So they don't need to worry about their living. Uh, yes, they're living like that. Mm, that's interesting because often when we think of soldiers defecting from the military, we think about how do we reach them and what messaging do we give them and how are they being brainwashed and everything along with that. And what you're saying is actually it's the woman who holds sway in a lot of the decisions. It's the woman who is pushing the soldier. I'm sure it's not there's different relationships and different power dynamics, but you're saying that in many cases – the woman is the driving force behind encouraging the husband to leave or to stay. Yeah, yeah. The women, the women are the main. Mm. <laughs> uh, because, yeah, um, the uh, the husband also uh, might not want to kill the innocent people. Some, I, I mean, some some are very happy to kill, uh, but uh, they have if they have no background support, they can do it. They couldn't do it, but um, uh, find the encouraging words from their beloved wives. That's a lot of strength. Hmm. Because wife, wives can do anything, right? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and I guess they don't. I guess these fearsome soldiers that are going out and causing terror uh, in the country. I guess the one thing that they really don't want to handle is the scorn of their wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, I I feel I can also feel that uh, there are a lot of more people want to try CBN because um, they are also sick of uh, this this situation and like banking system and other educational system for their children. Um, also uh, to uh, to make money outside is more difficult. So. Everybody is sick of it. Yeah. I hope we will win soon. Sure, sure. So is there an, is there some kind of effort being made to not only target the soldiers, but to actually really go after their wives? If they're if the wives are the ones who are holding some of the power and the decision making ability, has there been work to try to orient the defection strategies to them to to get their ear and to encourage them? to use their power over their husbands to try to leave? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, we, we have a meeting soon uh, with the soldier's wife, so I can tell you more detail about, about that update. I, I was invited to that meeting, so... All right, that's that's really interesting. So, do do you know if there's been um, if if other groups have uh, had some kind of strategy or some kind of work trying to make contact with the wives and encourage them to defect? Yes, we are planning. We are planning about it. So we we, mm. we already have a group about that, and we plan to uh, also seduce and encourage the wives and the children. Like uh, giving them, uh, uh, sorry, uh, making them some classes like uh, knitting, knitting and crocheting, or some other uh, teaching some other languages like Spanish or Chinese. So even if they are not in the military, they can do uh, some more works outside, and they can earn money by that. So we are planning it. Yeah, and I guess that they're, the wives, as well as the soldiers, are being treated with respect and humanely and valued and uh, and, and spoken to uh, civilly. And that's quite a contrast to what their experience is in the military, where, again, this is a fascist organization where there is common abuse from senior to junior and you and the, 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 the wider people are treating them in a different way than they're accustomed to. Mm. Yeah, uh, in in the military, the positions is matter. Just just the position matters because if uh, your husband's position is higher, you can uh, you can uh, how can I say you can request anything you want uh, to uh, to the other's wife who are uh, lower position than your husband. So that's sick. Mm -hmm. And this also seems to kind of go back to the earlier conversation we were having about the nuance of humanity and of human values and how even some of the worst Nazis like Hermann Goring or some of the worst people in the Tamada, they probably still have some shred of humanity or they're, they're kind to their dog or their wife or their kids or, or someone that they, they have some humanity somewhere that can be tapped. And just as in an organization that's in, that's as evil and fascist as the Tatmada, that there are so many people in there that don't necessarily want to be there or doing what they're doing, or maybe they're caught in the system and making bad decisions, but they can still be reached. They can still be tapped. 
And that's why this defection strategy and the defection work is so, so important because it is a nonviolent means of trying to reach a shred of humanity of, as you said, psychopaths with guns that are causing all of this damage. And the the whole mindset around defection, I would say, is believing in the goodness of humanity, believing that even in the darkest of situations and in speaking to an aggressor, that there is a way to talk to someone with that mindset and find that humanity if you're skillful and be able to speak not out of fear or anger or hatred for what they're doing, but to be able to identify that humanity that's buried somewhere in there and speak to that goodness to be able to make a decision which is actually not harming anyone, is actually diffusing uh, and resolving the situation. So, you know, this is this is really, really great work, and it really takes a mature mindset behind the work to be able to implement it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's why, uh, that's why we are trying to, uh, trying to remind their sympathy and empathy, so they can they can still remember they are also human like us, and with can or without can, they they uh they might know that they have to uh keep mercy on the civilians. What uh their duty is just to protect us, not to kill us. We are reminding it. Mm, right. And along with that, many of the people in the military are Buddhists, and Buddhism is a, a value that even the top generals promote. And so I'm wondering when you're talking to soldiers or their wives and you're reminding them of certain kinds of commitments to protect people and looking for this humanity buried within, uh, where does the role of Buddhism and Buddhist values fit into this kind of conversation? Um, I, I'm not very sure about that uh, because I was in military um, just only eight years so I'm not sure about it but they really value about their uh, <coughs> uh, say, uh, their higher position ones because uh, they were trained to obey the orders not to question about it so, uh, all we are also doing, um, texting, texting them by a fiber, uh, cause, uh, I got a friend of me got, uh, the, the phone numbers, a lot of phone numbers, like, uh, like thousands of them. So, uh, there's also a warrior who content, uh, who text them by a fiber application to try to want a dry CDM and so they can help some soldiers believe and interested some are saying abusing words and lock so right and of course this is where the spy games come into it because you have two strangers on both sides of the line that have to trust each other you are offering soldiers to defect on Viber and there's a danger that some of those soldiers could be spies that are pretending to defect and actually getting intel. The soldier himself has to also be careful because there could be a military informant that's pretending to offer him defection and that will actually entrap him if he accepts. And so it sounds like 
that's a very fraught situation, the kind of spy game of both sides having to feel each other out and being total strangers to know if and how they can trust. Yeah, just, um, of course, just trust. So we, we don't know each other. And some, uh, even though we, we don't know each other and we can't see each other, some soldiers believe, you know, uh, they because they wanted to uh, know what is CDM and uh, as our situation worse, they thought uh, they might get better life. Uh, of course, they are getting better lives and uh, Sam believes blindly and Sam, not Sam, most of, most of them don't believe us, but who cares if there is also one person who believes us, that's our win. That's okay. So that's all really interesting. And I really thank you for sharing this, for sharing your story, the family that you came from and how your path to becoming a revolutionary, what you're doing now and your involvement with these defected soldiers as well as their wives. Uh, I think that's quite educational for all of us. And we really wish everyone the best there, myself, uh, everyone on this platform, we are doing everything we can to support you at this time. And part of that is being able to have these interviews where these voices can get out to so many other people and hear them and understand what's going on, raise awareness and hopefully support as well. The work you're doing with defection is so important. Our nonprofit has used uh, quite a bit of the donations we've received to be able to support the defection movement. As we've mentioned, this is the greatest hope of nonviolence that we have here of speaking to this humanity and trying to diffuse the situation in that way. And so we really encourage listeners that are interested to, if you have the means to be able to give a donation of small or big, to be able to support this defection effort, which can, uh, any donation that goes to our nonprofit can be earmarked for the work that Susan is doing. And we can make sure that we get her those funds because this is one of the most important things we can be doing to, to save lives now. And you know, Susan is at the center of this work. So we thank her for that and thank her for coming on and explaining and sharing her story here. And thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for your precious time. One of the most tragic aspects of the current crisis in Myanmar is how isolated Burmese protesters feel and, in fact, are. This has been compounded by bank closures, and as a result, ordinary wire transfers are not possible. Thankfully, through a trusted local network, we're able to ensure that all donations successfully reach their intended target. So if you found yourself moved by today's discussion and want to do what you can to help, please consider giving to our fund which is 100% directed towards supporting the movement. 
If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are resisting the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Every cent goes immediately and directly to funding those local communities who need it most. Donations go to support such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, and the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies. Or if you prefer, you can earmark your donation to go directly to the guest you just heard on today's show. In order to facilitate this donation work, we have registered a new nonprofit called Better Burma for this express purpose. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is now directed to this fund. Alternatively, you can visit our new Better Burma website, which is betterburmaoneword.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at In all cases, that's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration. Yeah, yeah, yeah.